Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler, der sætter verden sammen. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den franske økonom Thomas Piketty, som fik et helt ekstraordinært globalt gennembrud med bogen Kapitalen i det 21. århundrede, som udkom på fransk i 2013, og derefter blev distribueret vidt og bredt blandt den vestlige verdens venstreintellektuelle akademikere, entusiaster, kapitalismekritikere, og efterfølgende også blandt de højreorienterede og kapitalisterne, som måtte ligesom se, hvad var det for en særlig kritik, der var kommet her. Den bredte sig som en vanvittig pandemi gennem først den vestlige verden og siden resten af verden. Det, som Thomas Piketty gjorde i bogen, det var, at han gennem meget, meget grundige datasæt og meget, meget stor bearbejdning af et omfattende empirisk materiale, viste, hvordan uligheden havde udviklet sig i løbet af det 20. århundrede. Det var ikke en ideologisk bog. Det var en ekstremt veldokumenteret bog. Det var heller ikke en venstreorienteret bog i den forstand, at den råbte op om den og den og den handling skal der til nu, eller den fremlagde et utopisk ideologisk program. Det var en analytisk bog, der viste, hvordan uligheden var opstået, hvad der var dens betingelser, og hvordan den var blevet videreudviklet. Der er mange forskellige pointer i bogen, som jeg ikke vil gengive her, men der var en grundpointe, som er blevet Piketty's projekt, og det var, at økonomi er ikke en videnskab, der behøver at blive lukket for resten af verden. Vores samfund bliver styret efter deres økonomiske indretning. Dem, der bestemmer over økonomien, fordeler også magten i samfundet. Derfor kan man ifølge Piketty ikke leve med, at det kun er ganske få fagøkonomer, der har indsigt i, hvordan økonomien bliver forvaltet. Så han brugte sin bog på at oversætte rigtig meget af det, der kunne have været tilgængeligt i fagøkonomiske termer, til et sprog, som alle og enhver kunne forstå. Det, som Piketty viste i bogen, det er, at uligheden, som den har udviklet sig i dag, den handler ikke bare om, at der er nogen, der får mere i løn end andre. Det er en fundamental uretfærdighed, som han dokumenterer og peger på i bogen. Og det er, at man faktisk kan tjene flere penge på at have penge, end på at tjene penge. Afkastet af velstand og store formuer giver de rige større indtægter, end deres arbejdsindkomster gør. Og det vil sige, at det er en ulighed, som på ingen som helst måde kan forsvares. Fordi uligheden afspejler ikke på nogen som helst måde, at nogen har gjort mere end andre, har været dygtigere end andre. Den afspejler, at de har mere end andre. Og på den måde, der startede Piketty en international debat om, hvad skal vi beskatte? Hvor der pludselig i forskellige lande, som ellers havde afvist det, Tyskland for eksempel, var snak om, at man skulle have en formueskat. I Amerika blev Piketty's tanker enormt toneangivende, ført frem gennem Bernie Sanders og Elizabeth Warren, er de også blevet en del af præsident Joe Bidens platform. Det Joe Biden fremlagde for nylig, hans forslag til et budget, det omfattede faktisk en formueskat, som var nærmest skræddersyd over Piketty's tanker. Så vi har at gøre med en økonom, der blev en global intellektuel, som skrev på en måde, der gjorde, at hans idéer fik direkte politisk betydning. Nogle år senere, der skrev han den store bog, som hed Kapital og Ideologi, som var endnu længere. Den var på 1100 sider. Det er en gennemgang af, hvilke former for ideologier, der er blevet brugt til at understøtte ulighed gennem historien. 
Piketty's pointe var i kapital og ideologi, at idéer spiller en langt større rolle, end vi almindeligvis antager. Det er ikke bare sådan, at der er nogle økonomiske jernlov og nogle meget stærke markedskræfter og nogle kolossale koncentrationer af økonomisk magt, som bestemmer fordelingen af penge og velstand i vores samfund. Alle økonomiske arrangementer, alle økonomiske institutioner, de bygger på nogle idéer, og de idéer bliver brugt til at forsvare dem. Og hvis man forstår de idéer, så forstår man også, at de faktisk kan udfordres, og de faktisk kan laves om. Så der findes faktisk en idékamp. Og på den måde var Kapital og Ideologi en langt mere optimistisk bog. Det var en bog, som redegjorde for, at hvis vi taler om tingene, forstår dem, forstår idéerne, stiller krav til vores politiske ledere og økonomiske magthaver, så kan vi faktisk godt lave samfundet om. Og det Piketty viste er, at over de sidste 250 år, der er samfundet faktisk blevet lavet rigtig meget om, og samfundet er blevet langt, langt mere retfærdigt. Så hvor den første bog, Kapitalen, i det 21. århundrede, handlede om, hvordan uligheden var blevet skabt, hvordan fordelingen af velstand var urimelig, og hvordan vi var gået fra at være et mere lige samfund til at blive et ulige samfund over de sidste 50 år, der viser han i Kapital og Ideologi, hvordan den overordnede bevægelse er fra ulighed til lighed. Så ved at tage et større perspektiv, så går han fra en pessimistisk historiefortælling til en optimistisk historiefortælling. Nu har Thomas Piketty udgivet en ny bog, som hedder En kort historie om lighed, der netop er udkommet på informationsforlag. Og det er en bog på 250 sider, som er relativt hurtigt læst, og som er meget, meget let forståelig. Det er en langt mere aktivistisk bog, end Thomas Piketty tidligere har skrevet. Det er en bog, som vil mobilisere til handling. Det er en bog, som giver entusiaster, aktivister, venstreorienterede politikere argumenter for at kræve store politiske forandringer. Et af forslagene i bogen er, at man afskaffer kapitalens fri bevægelighed globalt, så længe omkostningerne ved den ikke bliver socialt kompenseret i de stater, som bliver ramt af det. Og så længe der ikke er afkast i skat til alle lande i verden, så skal det ikke være tilladt for kapitalen at bevæge sig globalt. Så han taler for en global skat på kapital som en betingelse for kapitalens fri bevægelighed. Det er bare et af forslagene i bogen. En anden meget overraskende ting ved den her bog i forhold til alle Piketty's tidligere skrifter, og der er mange, det er, at han ikke kun tænker ulighed i forhold til økonomi, han tager spørgsmålet om den kolonialistiske arv op. Hvordan kan vi faktisk betale den gæld, vi har i de engang koloniserede lande til de engang koloniserede lande? Hvordan kan vi faktisk betale det tilbage? Han tager spørgsmålet om ligestilling mellem kønnene op. Han tager spørgsmålet om ligestilling mellem raser op. Så det her er en bog, som ifølge Piketty handler om, at alle kampe imod ulighed, de skal forbindes, for ellers så taber vi dem. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and especially good evening to you, Thomas Piketty, who's with us from Paris. Hello. Det er en meget mere åben bog, det er en meget mere mobiliserende bog end Piketty nogensinde har skrevet før. Han er langt mere engageret intellektuelt i den her bog, end han er universitetsøkonom. Og det er det, som vores samtale handler om. Det er, hvad er det, han vil som engageret intellektuel? Hvordan tror han på, vi kan lave verden om? Og hvad er det for nogle tendenser, han ser til, at vi faktisk, på trods af alle mulige krisetegn, stadig bevæger os mod en verden, som er mere retfærdig, mere lige, og hvor der er frihed til flere mennesker? 
there was already in capital in the 21st century a part of your project to take the economic discourse and introduce it to a wider democratic audience to democratize the discourse on, on economics. And then in capital and ideology, there was a more hopeful way of reading uh, history and more emphasis on, on ideas. And I think this book is a kind of third step here because this takes both of these things. It opens definitely some very complicated discourse to a lot of new readers. But it seems to me also like almost a kind of mobilization, a kind of a call to action book. Well, thank you, uh, Rune, you know, for giving me this opportunity to talk about the book to people in Denmark. And, uh, you know, I'm very glad uh, that you like the book. You know, I think, yeah, I think I am making progress over time. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm you know, I think this book is better than the, than the previous ones. Uh, I mean, there are two things which are different. You know, first of all, it's much shorter. You know, I try to make an effort to be much more concise. You know, I think capital and ideology uh, uh, was too long, you know. Well, you know, I was happy that I wrote it. I learned a lot by writing it. And, you know, for people who have enough time to go to go until the end, you know, I think, I, you know, I think it's an interesting book. But, you know, it was really very, very long. So after writing it, you know, I thought, okay, I have to make an effort, you know. To, and so I, I say I have to write something much more concise. Uh, and this is what I've done for those which don't have time to read 1,000 pages, you know, this one is like 250 pages, you know, you can read it in a weekend or so, you know, it's it's uh, it's readable. And the second big novelty, as you said, is that, you know, I think by, by being more concise, I also uh, clarified some of my sort of main conclusion, main ideas. And indeed, you know, I, I now I insist more on this sort of optimistic, view of the world and this idea that, you know, in the long run, there is a movement toward more equality, uh, which is a very powerful movement, you know, which really comes with modernity. So it's not a movement that has been there forever, you know, since Neolithic times or whatever, you know, it's grounded in history. It starts very much uh, at the end of the 18th century with a number of revolutions, the French Revolution, the US Revolution in a different way. And, and, you know, this continues until until today. So this is a movement which starts in particular with the end of uh, aristocratic uh, privileges uh, during the French Revolution. It starts also with the slave revolt in Saint-Domingue, which sets, in a way, you know, the beginning of the end of slave societies and colonial societies. And then it continues in the 19th century with uh, you know, the development of labor movement, uh, the, the abolition of slavery, the development of uh, universal male suffrage. Then in the 20th century, you know, with the welfare state, progressive taxation, uh, universal suffrage, male and female suffrage, independence wars, the end of apartheid, civil rights movement in the US. And it continues today with, uh, you know, the Me Too movement, Black Lives Matter movement. And so this, you know, this long run march toward equality is something which is much more uh, uh, important and much deeper than just a story about, you know, World War I and World War II reducing inequality and there's nothing we can, there's nothing good we can expect uh, apart from uh, having other wars, I think, which I think is a particularly, you know, pessimistic, negative view of history, which I don't share at all. And uh, sometimes, you know, I was a bit puzzled after my, my two previous books by the fact that some people seem to have this kind of conclusion. 
I don't think this is the way it works. You know, wars and big catastrophes are not necessary. They are not sufficient. They, they don't, in themselves, they are just bad. And, you know, what matters is more the positive uh, political mobilization uh, in order to change institutions in the long run, in a sustainable manner. And, you know, we've changed institutions quite a lot already. If you compare the, 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 the legal system, the fiscal system, the educational system that we have today, typically in Western European countries with what we had in 1910 or in 1800 or in 1750, you know, this has been transformed completely. And so when I draw perspective for the future to, to continue this movement toward equality, you know, some people may say, uh, okay, the dreamer, you know, we will never get uh, all this uh, redistribution of wealth, all these new workers' rights, etc. But, you know, I think the transformation that I describe for the future, very substantial, of course, but they are not more substantial than the transformation that we've already seen uh, in the past uh, century or two centuries. And so we need, you know, to start thinking again about, you know, the big transformation and, and we need to be ambitious because, you know, if we, if we abandon this perspective on, you know, this movement toward more equality in the long run, then, you know, it means we're going to leave the floor to all sorts of, uh, you know, nationalist uh, agenda, uh, identitarian agenda. Uh, and, and so, you know, I think it's, it's very important, you know, to, to sort of restart uh, uh, sort of this, this, uh, process of uh, uh, optimistic uh, thinking about the, about the long run on the basis of you know, solid uh, historical uh, evidence, of course. <laughs> yes, but I think also that we are practically the same generation, still young. I think we also have a kind of moral obligation to not be doomers and to not say, well, only war can tear down wealth, and that we must pass something progressive on to the next generation. And in your book, you put a lot of emphasis on social movement. You say this cannot be done in, in, the, in the salons alone. You, we need social movements. And I agree with you that we've seen some very helpful social movements. Your own daughters have been engaged in Fridays for Future. And I think they've brought tremendous change when it comes to the ecological agenda. Me Too, Black Lives Matter also brought tremendous change. I myself have a little bit the worry that the movements that we see today, they bring change within hierarchies, that they do not manage to redistribute power and they do not manage to redistribute wealth. How do you see that? You, you know, no, you're right. They are not sufficient because I think they have, uh, sometimes maybe, you know, they have abandoned a little bit the, the objective of really transforming the economic system itself. And in particular, the system of, you know, the property regime, you know, what are the rights of property owners as compared to uh, other actors in society? How you, do you redistribute power uh, between uh, shareholders and workers? How do you redistribute property itself? You know, I think we, we need to, to think again about sort of this core economic uh, issues, these issues about the redistribution of property. And, and I think if we cannot actually solve the other dimensions, either you know, gender inequality, environmental inequality, uh, racial discrimination, if at the same time, we don't have this, this ambitious uh, perspective on uh, transforming the economic system, and you know, let's call it clearly, you know, going beyond 
capitalism. And you know, this process of going toward democratic socialism, which, which I described uh, in my book, you know, has, has already started a long time ago. You know, the system that we have today, Uh, you know, some people like to call it capitalism and some people like to say, you know, there's only one possible system that's capitalism. But in fact, you know, I think it's a wrong perspective. I think there's very little in common, you know, between the kind of economic system we have today and the one we had in 1910. You know, being a, a, a property owner today, for instance, you know, is very different than 100 years ago. You know, if you're a property owner, you can... Uh, you know, fire your workers the way you want. You can uh, divide the wage by two if you want. You can expel your tenant if you want, uh, double the rent. You know, you're the king. And, and, and this goes together with the patriarchal order. This goes together with the colonial order. So all of this, you know, has been transformed completely. So today, you know, the system is far from being perfect, but there are rights for workers. There are rights for tenants. There is a universal healthcare system. There is Uh, you know, the whole legal system has been completely transformed. And, you know, it's it, what's lacking sometimes today in some of the, of the new, uh, you know, social movements that you describe, and in particular in the ecological movement and some of the green parties, is that they are sometimes, in my view, not sufficiently ambitious about the reduction of economic inequality the reduction of inequality between social class. And the consequence of that is that uh, many members of you know, the middle class or the lower middle class or, or the more disadvantaged uh, social group feel uh, that they are a little bit left out of, of this new objective and that, in fact, they are going to be the loser of some of this program. And I think you know, we, we have to take this uh, very seriously. And, you know, I think there will be no solution to uh, our, uh, uh, our environmental problem if we don't have a very strong, very sharp reduction of inequality. You know, just something I really want to stress is that today, uh, uh, you know, if you look at the distribution of carbon emission in the world, but also at the distribution of carbon emission within each country, you know, there is a tremendous level of inequality, both of course, between the North and the South, but also within the North, within the South. And so if you talk about solution to carbon emission, which do not recognize this enormous level of inequality, that's not going to work. So just to, to give you an example, in, in Europe today, like in a country like Denmark or a country like France, if you look at the bottom 50% of the population, you know, their carbon emission today is only, you know, four or five tons of carbon emission per year, which is still too much, you know, it should go toward two or three tons, but, you know, it's, it's not so far away from what it should be. You know, it's already almost in line with our objective for 2030, 2040. The problem is that if you look at the top 10% of the population, they have an average carbon emission of 25, 30 tons per, per year uh, per, per capita. If you look at the top 1%, you have 70 tons uh, per capita. And in the US, even the top 10% is at the level of the top 1% in Europe, which is about 70 tons per capita. So given this situation, you know, if you come with a solution that aims to reduce everybody uh, proportionally, you know, like with a proportional carbon tax or with a general increase in energy prices 
and you tell the entire population, okay, everybody is going to have to reduce, you know, by half your emission. You know, people at the bottom, in the bottom 50%, and so I'm not talking only about the very poor, you know, I'm talking about the bottom 50% or the bottom 60%, you know, they are not going to accept that. And you're go if you do that, you're going to have gigantic uh, yellow vest movement all over the place. Uh, uh, because the people who emit so little uh, in the bottom 50% or bottom 60% of the population, you know, they will tell you, look, uh, you know, you first need to reduce inequality drastically. You first need to ask people at the top to change their lifestyle and reduce their emission of, uh, of 30 tons or 70 tons per capita enormously before we make an effort. So we can consider the possibility of making an effort as well, but you know, the, you first need to start with the people at the, at the very top. And if you don't do that, you know, whether it's in uh, Denmark, in, in France, in the US, in Brazil, all over the place, you know, you're gonna have huge social movement and the people in the bottom uh, income groups and, and bottom wealth group will never vote for uh, the ecological parties and for, you know, the sort of uh, new left parties. You know, if the issue of inequality is not addressed in a much more, you know, concrete and massive uh, manner uh, right from the beginning of the political and economic analysis of the situation. So I think that's what's missing. And that's, you know, one of the reasons why, uh, you know, in the bottom 50% uh, income group of the population, you know, you have a strong temptation to either abstain from voting or vote for typically anti-migrant uh, parties. Because, you know, it's not that people at the, at the bottom, you know, feel this is going to solve their problem, but, and many of them stay at home, which shows that, you know, they are not particularly enthusiastic about anti-migrant party, otherwise they would all jump and vote with huge participation rate. But many of them do that because they feel, you know, okay, you know, these people in all the left party or green parties are not really protecting me anymore. You know, at least, uh, you know, this competition coming from the South, uh, you know, I feel, uh, you know, someone is going to protect me from that. So, you know, let's let's go for that. You know, they are not particularly enthusiastic about this, but, you know, they feel that nobody is really uh, trying to protect them and to improve their living turns out like what happened, you know, with, uh, with social democratic and left parties after World War II. And so, you know, this lack of redistributive ambition and this lack of ambition in terms of redistributing wealth and improving the living standards of the bottom 50% is one of the key reasons why we have this uh, sometime, uh, you know, extreme right-wing uh, vote uh, among these um, social and economic groups. And, uh, you know, there are countries, you know, including Denmark, as you know, where the, the social Democrats have had this wonderful idea of saying, uh, okay, let's do like the extreme right of, you know, uh, eating the, <laughs> the migrants so that at least, you know, we, we, we get uh, these voters back. You know, I think this is a, a very cynical and disastrous uh, uh, policy in the, in the long run, because, you know, in, in the end, uh, you know, first, you're not going to improve the living standards of the, of the poor in, in Denmark or in France by eating more uh, the migrants, you know, who already suffer from massive discrimination and, and very bad uh, living standards. So, you know, the idea is that by eating them even more, 
you're going to improve the living standards of the poor. You know, it's, it doesn't work. You know, I think it, there's, if you really want to improve the living standards of the poor, you have to eat, you know, the billionaires, the very high wealth people, the high income people. So, okay, that's more difficult to do than eating uh, the poor migrants, but that's what's going to work in the, in the long run. So, yeah, we, we live in a difficult time, you know, in Denmark, in, in France also. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I think the... You know, this long run objective of going toward more equality, you know, is, is more important than ever. I think in your book, you're, you're very hopeful in this prospect. And you do something that I think is very, very interesting is that you broaden the scope of equality. In capital and ideology, it was about economy and, and the environment. But here you also talk about race and about gender and even about colonialism. And for a long time on the left, it's been either are you... Uh, fighting for identity politics or like Marxist redistribution of economists. It's been or vertical equality or horizontal equality. These issues have been kind of fighting against each other on, on the left. And they bring another class dimension to it between those with high education and those without it. But you really managed to think them together here in a quite elaborate socialism, which I think is, is quite an accomplishment. How do you think of, of this broader scope of equality that you introduce here? Yeah, well, you know, I think we, we have to put everything together. And, you know, I also put a lot of emphasis on political equality, you know, because what we take for granted as, uh, you know, what we call democratic institution in the West right now is, okay, it's more democratic than 100 years ago or 200 years ago, but I think it's it's very far from being full democratic equality. I think if we want to have full democratic equality, uh, you know, you cannot have a system where the financing of political parties, the financing of the media, you know, is so concentrated among a few actors, you know, you would, in principle, you know, I think maybe 50 years from now, or 100 years from now, when people look at our democratic system today and they see individuals, uh, billionaires, you know, can, can uh, uh, you know, in, in my country, in France, and it's even worse in the US, you know, you have 10 billionaires who own half of the media and, you know, they have a political agenda. They, they actually played a big role, for instance, in the rise of, of Zemmour in, in my country. I don't know if you've heard about this character. We did. But, but uh, anyways, uh, you know, there was, you know, very right-wing uh, billionaire, you know, a little bit like Murdoch with uh, Fox News in the US, you know, who clearly made this choice. And, you know, I think the media, are democratic institutions that should be run in a much more democratic manner, you know, with more uh, uh, power for the journalists, for the readers, for the citizens. You know, you cannot own a, a, a media, a, a, a TV channel like, uh, you know, you own another commodity, just like you cannot, in principle, buy votes. And so I think uh, setting more ambitious standards for political equality and more equality in participation in political life and also in economic decision making, you know, more workers' rights in companies is, is very important. In terms of gender inequality, you know, we are still very, very far from a, from a satisfactory situation. You know, if you, if you look at the, you know, the share of women in top earning occupation, if you look at the labor conditions in typically uh, female occupations or, or occupations where there's a very large fraction of women, in the healthcare sector, in the cleaning sector, supermarket, cashiers, you know, there's been much less collective mobilization about improving these working conditions, improving these wages than what has happened historically in male sectors. And, and so the, the problem is not to take away 
from male uh, low-wage workers. We always have this temptation in some, uh, uh, you know, people on the right, you know, to say, oh, you know, this is going to take away from the white male workers. Not at all. You know, you're taking away from the uh, shareholders. You're taking away from people at the top who are exploiting these women or who are exploiting uh, uh, these migrants. So, so yes, it's important to put everything together including at the international level. And, you know, remember the climate crisis and, you know, the migration crisis, you know, this is a world issue and there will be no rich country in the world, you know, without, you know, this world economic system, uh, without the world division of labor. And, you know, I think what, what the discussion we had last year about corporate tax reform and, you know, setting a minimum tax rate for corporations, you know, it was interesting, but it was very incomplete in many ways. Well, first, you know, the minimum tax rate of 15% for multinationals is far too low. But what's even worse is that the South was completely out of the discussion. So basically, it was a game where rich countries in the North would reallocate some of the profits that are based in uh, tax havens to the north and, and you know the share going to the south is, is extremely small. And you know, I think there should be at least a fraction, you know, a sizable fraction of the tax revenue coming from the uh, most powerful economic actors in the world, large multinationals, but also billionaire, high wealth uh, and very high income individuals that should benefit you know, all countries in the world in, in proportion to their population. And you know, if we if we don't do that, you know, I think we will have uh, uh, development problems in the long run, uh, migration problems in the long run. We will also have the situation where China, you know, which is a sort of very authoritarian, uh, they call it socialism, but, you know, this is a form of state socialism. Uh, this, is, this looks more like a perfect uh, digital dictatorship to me, and, and certainly this has nothing to do with the kind of democratic, uh, decentralized, uh, participatory socialism that I'm trying to, to describe in my book, and which is much more in the continuation of the European uh, welfare state approach that was developed in the 20th century. But if we don't continue this approach, and if we don't propose to the South a better deal in terms of sharing of tax resources, etc., then, you know, other countries, in particular China, will do it. That's already what they are doing. You know, remember the UN vote uh, on uh, Ukraine and Russia, you know, you had half of Africa and half of South Asia that was actually abstaining. And, and if you compute, you know, their share in world population and world GDP by 2,100, it would be like two-thirds of, of the world total. And so Denmark is not an island and Sweden <laughs> is not an island and France is not an island. And, you know, the view that we can be prosperous on our own uh, and, you know, that when there are uh, refugees uh, in, in Mali or Afghanistan, you know, this is very far away from us, uh, you know, only the neighboring countries should be concerned. The problem is that when there is some natural resource, you know, when there is some mm -hmm. uranium uh, in, uh, in Niger or in Mali, you know, the Western companies, they will be there the next morning, even <laughs> if 10,000 kilometers away. So, you know, there's a, this kind of hypocrisy Sometimes we don't realize that the world public opinion and in particular public opinion, you know, in Africa, in South Asia, you know, they are very much aware of that, of this kind of hypocrisy. And, and I think this in the long run, you know, is, is going 
against us and against, you know, a sort of more balanced view of world development. So, you know, this is why we have to try to put everything together and we cannot just deal with one aspect of social and economic justice and, and forgetting about the, the other dimensions. Well, I have one last question because we have a time frame, which is that when people who are young, they could say, well, Mr. Piketty, it's very good that you can see over 200 years that we've seen rising equality, but we are young and we saw the financial crisis in 2008 and we saw what it did to poor people. We thought it was the end of neoliberalism. We got neo-nationalism instead. And then we saw the pandemic and we said, well, now you see taboos being broken and people are starting to run deficits and they throw away the Merkel doctrine of Europe. And what do we get? We get quantitative easing and even more inequality. Now we're in a very special moment with this war. And I do not mean to instrumentalize this war, but we're in a moment where it seems that people are setting political targets above economic targets. You are seeing that market fundamentalism will lead us to finance the war machine of Putin. And now you're talking about Russian oligarchs and you're realizing this is actually in the infrastructure of our own societies. This is not just a strange enemy from without. We facilitated this rise. Do you see in what's happening now, which I think on the one hand is very dangerous with the sanctions hitting the poor people here, the poor people in Russia. On the other hand, very hopeful with the way that you're looking at capitalism and saying, what kind of goods are we creating? Do you see a transformative moment here? Well, you know, hopefully we will use this terrible moment to accelerate the transformation. Look, you know, this gas and this oil should have remained in Russian soil, you know, for the past 10 years, 20 years. So it was already a complete mistake to buy it, to burn it. You know, that's, that's a, a catastrophe. In addition, the money coming from this gas and oil has been in effect stolen from the Russian people because it has been taken by a small elite of Russian uh, oligarchs. And, you know, we are not talking just of a few hundred people. It's a few tens of thousand people. You know, we have computed at the World Inequality Lab in Paris that you have around 20,000 uh, uh, individuals from Russia who own more than 10 million euros in net wealth. And if you put the, the target at 5 million, you have almost uh, 60,000 people. And, and between one half and two thirds of what they own is actually... In, you know, in Paris, in London, in, in Courchevel, in Côte d'Azur, in Luxembourg, in you know, mutual funds and financial portfolio in New York. And so we have been actively participating to this system and, and we have been complice of this system. And, and today, uh, you know, we should, of course, set up a system of financial transparency, a financial uh, cadastre of the world, or at least of Europe, where we know who owns what where so that we can have effective sanctions against this small group of people rather than sanctions that are going to eat the, the poor uh, in Russia at the expense of the poor in, in Europe. So I think, you know, we have to move toward much stronger ambition in terms of fiscal justice, social justice, if we want to, 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 to solve this crisis. Now, if we, again, if we take the bigger picture, and you know, I'm not talking only of the multi-century perspective, but the more short-term perspective. You know, I think neoliberalism is dead. You know, I, I think following the 2008 financial crisis, following the pandemic, and now with this war, uh, you know, people have realized that you know neoliberalism has, has gone too far. Now, the risk 
as you said, is that this is replaced by some form of neo-nationalism, uh, typically, you know, uh, Trump, uh, Bolsonaro, Brexit, or, you know, the kind of political movement, uh, nationalist, anti-migrant movement that we see in Europe. You know, of course, in the short run, and maybe in the medium run, unfortunately, neo-nationalism, sort of simpler message to solve the problem than the kind of historical analysis I am proposing about, you know, what kind of new step for progressive taxation, what kind of new step for workers' rights, uh, welfare state, uh, international reform of the tax system. You know, this is more complicated to explain, and the focus on national identity and sort of nationalist attitude, you know, if I start uh, explaining to Donald Trump uh, that, you know, progressive taxation uh, in the US was up to 80% tax rate uh, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, and that it was the most prosperous time period for the US, you know, I think he would have stopped listening uh, much before I have uh, finished my explanation. But, you know, we don't need to go to the level of Donald Trump. In the end, neo-nationalism will not stay because it will not solve the problem. The big inequality problem, social problem, environmental uh, problems that we have to address are not going to be addressed by neo-nationalism. And so this is what makes me you know, optimistic, not only you know, in the very, very long run, but you know, even in the next 10 or 20 years, which is that you know, neo-nationalism is simply unable to address the big issue. That being said, you know, how fast we will go in the right direction, you know, is, is very uncertain and is going to depend on everybody's uh, uh, implication. And, you know, in the end, this is the main uh, message I'm trying to push in my work is that, you know, we should not leave uh, uh, economic issues and financial issues to a small group of experts. You know, these are Uh, issues and, and problems for uh, uh, everybody. And I very much hope that this book, which is much shorter than the previous <laughs> one, can contribute to this democratization of uh, economic knowledge and historical knowledge, which will never be enough, that will never be sufficient. But, you know, I think this is a necessary condition for the, the democratization of society in, in general. Well, thank you very much. I want to recommend your book to everyone. They will love it. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your work. We keep using your ideas and being inspired by them. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, Wunner. Det var min samtale med Thomas Piketty. Og som sagt, så kan bogen En kort historie om lighed købes på Informationsforlag. Man kan gå ind på Informations hjemmeside. Og så kan man klikke på det ikon, der hedder butikken. Og så kan man gå ind i butikken, og hvis man er abonnent, så får man sørme oven købet også en rabat på bogen. Så man går ind på Informations hjemmeside og køber en kort historie om lighed. Den er som sagt hurtigt læst og voldsomt avalerende, og den giver nogle argumenter til dem, der har brug for det i alle mulige diskussioner, hvor man kæmper for lighed og for, at alle lighedskampe skal være forbundet. I næste uge skal vi et helt andet sted hen. Der taler jeg med den italienske filosof Emanuele Coccia. Og det handler om, hvordan vi skal tænke mennesket i forhold til naturen. Hvordan vi skal forstå planternes liv i forhold til menneskenes liv, hvis vi skal gøre vores bedste for at undgå klimakatastrofen. Det er ikke en katastrofesamtale. Det er en håbefuld samtale om, hvordan vi kan genopdage verden, imens vi redder den. Denne her udsendelse var, som alle andre udgaver af langsomme samtaler, produceret af vores ven og held, Anne Pilegaard Petersen, 
der har fået sat mine brokker sammen til noget, som I forhåbentlig har kunne holde ud og høre på i den her uge, og som I forhåbentlig også vil være med til at lytte til i næste uge. Tusind tak for nu. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg.